Our Father and our God, Jesus Christ, is not just the Savior. He's my Savior. He's our Savior. He is the Savior of any man or woman, boy or girl, who have seen their need because of sin and have embraced this glorious Savior provided by a Father who so loved the world that he could not let her continue in a path of her own destruction eternally. And so has sent his Son that we who believe might not simply sing of him as the Savior, a Savior, but our Savior, my Savior. The Lord is not simply a shepherd. He's my shepherd. He's not simply a king. He's my king. And we delight to call him our king. Our Father, what a sadness it must be to experience this season and only know about Power Rangers or a new car or a new toy or a new gadget and never know the gift, the gift of eternal life. What an empty, hollow, shallow mockery the whole season is for those who sing the songs and don't know the one about whom they were written. But we, O God, we are a people who by grace have been drawn irresistibly to this beautiful Savior. And because you have seen fit to do so, we stand to sing that on that night, God took on flesh and lived for 33 years so that he could end his life on a cross paying for the sin of his people. And we have been set free from sin and death because of his great accomplishments. Nothing else, nothing more, just him. Our whole hope of eternal life is wrapped up in who he is and what he did. And so, Father, for us to sing of him and to think of him entering this, this sin-sick world of ours is such a thrill. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we, in, this, in these coming days, gather with our families, the thing that might bleed through our conversations and our gift-giving and our gift-getting is the, is the fact that we are redeemed, that we have been bought with a price and that our eternity is secure and we're on our way to heaven. And that is what gives us such a mood to celebrate. Well, Father, use our church to reach men with that message of the gospel. Allow us the privilege of seeing others one to Christ. But, Father, above all, we want to see you glorified in our lives, in our ministry, in our marriages, in our homes, in our Christmas celebrations. Oh, God, get glory for yourself. Keep our families safe that are traveling in these next few days. Lord, might this be a, a, a season indeed of reminder of how it is that we are prepared to live because we've been prepared to die by this newborn babe, Jesus Christ. We pray, of course, in his name. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles and stop all that coughing. You would think there was some flu going around or something. 
Open your Bibles with me to uh, Matthew chapter 2, and let's read uh, the story of the three wise men once again. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, we'll read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, a star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. Don't you just hate sermons that have two parts? That is, uh, part one on one Sunday and part two the next Sunday. Uh, you know, sermons are hard enough to understand in the first place without uh, missing the first half. And, and if you expect me, mister, to uh, remember anything that you said last week, well, I can hardly remember my cell phone number, much less what you said. Well, guys, I, I, I realize that that's a problem when you cut your sermon up in halves. But I've tried to avoid uh, both of those problems uh, for the morning. Uh, first of all, what you missed last week wasn't that good anyway, so don't worry about it. Um, and, and secondly, although the subject is the same, um, the, the three wise men, the, uh, the, what I want to say to you this morning really doesn't... Uh, depend on what you heard last week. They're, they're pretty much different themes about the Magi. So, so relax. You don't have to remember anything except maybe, um, maybe your cell phone number and, 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 of course, how to turn that thing off. We're discussing, as I said last week, the three wise guys, the we three kings of Orient are fellows, those, those wise men from the east, whoever they were. Uh, you've all seen the, the bumper sticker about wise men still seek him. Well, that's who we're talking about, those guys. And what I suggested last week is, is the hope that as we take a look at them, if indeed they are wise, maybe we can grow wiser and by understanding a little bit more about them. Maybe they'll teach us something. Maybe there's something about them that will make us all the wiser. That's my hope. 
that's my goal, and uh, we'll see if it uh, comes to pass. Last week, what I pointed out was this, is that the journey that they took from the east is a journey that originated in faith. They heard something and they followed the rumor to the, uh, to the side of the newborn babe. In the midst of, or the fact that they took that journey was a testimony to the other world, to another world, that this wasn't the only world there is. The very fact that they took this journey was a testimony to the existence of another one. Everybody thought them strange, and perhaps. But the very existence, the very fact that they took the journey was a statement. It was a testimony. It was a witness to the existence of another one, of another world besides this one. And then thirdly, the other thing that I pointed out really out of verse 3 is that everybody who watched them, everybody who saw it, Everybody who uh, knew about this journey was really kind of troubled. That's what verse 3 said, that Herod was troubled by it, and so was everybody in Jerusalem. They were just all shook up about the fact that these three men were on this very strange journey. Now, that's what I said last week. And there's really only one other thing that I want to add to that this morning. But before I get to that, I want to clean up several things that exist in this text, several um, aspects of the story that I hope will uh, at least further elucidate uh, some parts of the story. First of all, take a look at verse 1, that Jesus was born in the days of Herod. Jesus was born under a tyrant. This was one of the, um, uh, one of the three Herods. This is the first of the three Herods. This is Herod the Great. This is the guy who had two of his own sons strangled and his own wife murdered. Uh, He was a fine man. And um, uh, he was the the, the tyrant under whom uh, or in whose under whose rule Jesus was born. Um, The citizens of the city of Jerusalem apparently are more comfortable with his being the king than any talk of this uh, new king. So, so they really have no interest. There's only three people who have interest, and they're a bit strange. They're a bit foreign. They're a bit weird. The, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus was born um, in a, in, into a, a setting, into a time where he was unwanted, he was unappreciated, righteousness was hated, truth was ignored. He, uh, he came into a world that was completely unwilling and incapable of showing him any kind of hospitality. There was just no interest in the coming of this king. There's uh, another thing that I wanted you to see in verse 1, the word behold, um, that Jesus was born and, and, and behold, a wise men. The, the idea is, listen up. There's something to be noticed about this. There's, there's, um, there's a tension that needs to be drawn to this subject. Jesus' birth demands the spotlight. So listen up. Behold. Don't, don't, um, don't read over this too quickly. Pause long enough to figure out who it is whose birth we're discussing. Then in verse 2, we're told that 
the, uh, the wise men go to Herod and ask where this guy's to be born. That was a bad move. That was a real bad move. Actually, it was their only bad move, but it was a bad move nonetheless. Uh, this is like uh, going into the office of Fidel Castro and asking if he knew where the deliverer of Cuba was being born. This wasn't a good move. Uh, and yet, where else would you look for the birth of a king besides a palace? But uh, this is the thing that, of course, uh, alerted Herod to the birth of, of his rival. And then verse 3. I, I mentioned this last week, but I just want to say one other thing. Uh, verse 3, the idea that everybody's troubled. From the moment that he was born, Jesus causes a stir. Everything that he does causes a stir. I mean, he hasn't spoken one word. He hasn't preached one sermon. He hasn't performed one miracle. And yet, people are upset. In a word, the, the very fact that he's entered the picture upsets people. You know, um, years ago, I was told a story by a, a, a guy who um, was a student at Mississippi State University. And he was um, in the, I, I, I don't know what else to call it, a, a student union. I'm going to call it a student union. Um, he was in the student union, and he was sitting with guys and girls, and there was about nine of them, he said, and they were, all, they were just talking about everything. They were talking about exams and sports and classes and philosophy and ideas, just having a wonderful time in this, in this very lively conversation. And then, and then one of the members of this little ninesome mentioned Jesus. And he said, all of a sudden, there was no more conversation, and within a matter of minutes... Everybody had left. That's what Jesus does. He simply calls. Have you ever been in a situation like this? I mean, everything's discussable except because he causes such a stir. Even the mention of that name upsets. Then um, I wanted you to see a couple of things in verse 11. Um, I want you to notice in verse 11 that we're told that the wise men came into the house. <laughs> they did not come to a manger. They came into a house. Uh, sorry, folks. All of those nativity scenes that you have in your home today with the wise men gathered around the manger are just a bit inaccurate. <laughs> um, call me a Grinch, but um, the, the wise men visited Jesus when he was somewhere in the neighborhood of about two years old. Sorry to burst your bubble, but uh, you notice he's called a child. He's not called a newborn infant. He's called a child. Um, he was somewhere around two when, when the Magi arrived. Um, I, I also want you to notice one other thing in verse 11. You'll notice that when they had come and they found him, they worshipped him. Not them. Mary is not included as an object of worship. They worshipped him, not them. Now, those are just some loose ends that I thought needed time up in the text. Let's now focus on this, this other lesson, this additional lesson that I hope that we can add on to the whole um, story of the Magi. I, I want you to notice the thing that they teach us. Because I'm convinced that the Magi illustrate a feature, a feature of the gospel. 
ladies and gentlemen, these three men, which is true about really the whole Bible, but what they do um, is they, they preach to us at least a bit about this gospel of grace that we hold so dear. They, they don't preach all of it, mind you. They didn't know all of it. In fact, one of the beautiful things that I think is true about these guys is that uh, before they had ever uh, seen one miracle, before they had ever heard anything of, of his teaching, before they saw any of his signs of deity, they worshipped him. They, uh, they knew that there was something really special about him. Maybe they didn't have all their questions answered, but there was something about him that evoked worship. And there he is. He's nothing but a child. He's helpless and weak and needing the, 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 the tender care of his mother. And yet they believed that they were before, that they were kneeling before the Savior of the world. They knew down deep, and that part of them where only you and God go, they knew that there was something really unique about this one that was in that manger. Now, but that's not my point. I'm suggesting to you that the wise men preach to us at least a portion of the gospel. They illustrate one of the central features of the gospel. Now, what is that? Well, let me read it to you uh, out of the words of Paul. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. This is in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. One of the central features of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is that we who were far off, way far off, have been brought near By the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, that these three men illustrate that central issue in the gospel. And that is that those of us who were far off have been brought near. You know, we don't know much for sure about these three guys. But we know this much for sure. We know that they were far off. And Jesus draws men, ladies and gentlemen, uh, from far distances. And, and, And guys, understand that I'm not speaking spatially here. Jesus draws men who are spiritually, religiously, morally far off to himself. All Christians... All of us, ladies and gentlemen, in some way or the other, were far off before Jesus drew us near. Our sin separates us from God, but in Christ we have been brought near. We have been brought close. And now we who were once far off are brought near. Ladies and gentlemen... You need to know that Jesus Christ is the only king and Christianity is the only religion that makes or provides an heroic role for the outsider, for the marginalized, for the disenfranchised, for the foreigner, for the outsiders. 
those people. It's those who are so far off that Jesus Christ has drawn near. Guys, one of the things that I want you to see about this story is the contrast between those who were, who were far off, who come near, while the near remain far off. Those fellows who were from far away are drawn near, while those who were supposedly near remain far off. These three guys, these three wise men, and their, and their response to this newborn king, in some ways, is a metaphor. A metaphor of the people who are far off morally and spiritually and religiously, but have been brought near. And those who see themselves as being near, they remain far off. Guys, um... The distance that I have in mind this morning is not spatial. Do you understand? This is not something you measure in miles. I'm simply saying that what you get here in the, in the, in the story of the Magi is somewhat metaphorical. Because those who were so far are the ones who are so interested in this newborn king. And yet those who were near are so far off spiritually. Folks, the, the, um, the uniqueness of the gospel is that the, that the outsider, the foreigner, the, the ones that you would have never dreamed are, are pulled in close by a God whose grace overcomes whatever obstacle exists. Folks, the distance between us and God has been produced by our sin. And yet, there is no distance. There's no distance that is insurmountable. There is no distance that grace can't bridge. This God of ours is a God of the outsider. He's the God of the foreigner. He's the God of people whose sin has left them far off. You know, folks, I, I can't tell you how many miles these guys traveled. I can simply say illustrative, or they, they illustrate a people who were a long ways away. And because their sin had driven them to an extreme distance, the glory of our message is that Jesus Christ finds a place for those whose sin has produced an extravagant distance. Their far-offness is just another reminder that all of us, all of us, before we came to Christ, were far off. And because of grace, ladies and gentlemen, we have been brought near. The distance, the distance between any of us and a holy God is downright galactic. But what has been accomplished in this gospel that we preach is that God has stepped over moral galaxies and has, and has drawn a people to himself who were once far off. The ones who don't get drawn are the ones who are convinced that they are already near. 
the ones who remain far off are those who never see the need. They never acknowledge their sin. They never come to the conclusion that they need anything. You know, folks, I want you to see again, by way of contrast, all of the people in this story, Herod, the scribes, the citizens of Jerusalem, all of them spatially are close and spiritually. Oh, they're far off. They, they, uh, they really have no interest in a newborn king. They, they've got their books. And very frankly, they're pretty satisfied with the person who's on the throne already. Distant? Far from God? Not me. Those three weird fellows may be far from God, but, but not us. Because I'm a very good person. I'm very religiously active. And we all know that people who are religiously active and, you know, good people, those are the people who are close to God. Is that so? Not in this story. Not in this gospel that I preach. Folks, it's the far off. It's the people who are far off and know they're far off. It's the people who know what damage their sin has done to them. Who were drawn near. I, I read a story recently about um, <laughs> one of my favorite conservative Republicans, Jesse Jackson, and um, not exactly somebody I want to emulate politically. There might be other things, but um, he was, took a visit to the University of Southern Miss in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and he was being um, uh, toured around the campus by the university president, and as they were taking a tour, they noticed, or he noticed, this towering male student that was holding hands with a midget of a co-ed. A little female co-ed that was, I mean, this, this boy, this young man was 6'8", 6'9", 6'10", something, and, and uh, this midget was barely three feet tall. And so um, Jackson kind of paused and and watched him, and, and, and this big, towering student picked up this little girl, kissed her, and then sent her off to class. And, um, of course, Jackson's curiosity was aroused, and so he turned to the president. He says, uh, what's this guy's story? And so the president said, well, he is a star basketball player here at uh, Southern Miss, and um, both of his parents were killed in his youth, and he made a vow that he was going to take care of his sister. And so, whereas he was offered numerous scholarships all around the country to play basketball, we were the only ones that offered a scholarship to his sister as well. And so, Jesse Jackson was so impressed with this basketball star that he went over to him, and, um, and he told him how much he appreciated the fact that he, this big old hunk of a man, was taking care of this, this midget of a sister of his. And, and um, this young man kind of shrugged his shoulders and looked at Jesse Jackson and he said, you know, 
those of us God made six eight. We have to look out for those who God made three three. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I are spiritual midgets. And Jesus is this towering figure of all mankind. And guess what? He's committed himself to look out for us who have such, who have been shrunk by our own sin. Guys, what, what grace means is that there is no, there's no sin that is, that is going to render us impossible to reach. Morally, spiritually, we're three foot three or less. And, and, and we need a Savior who is six eight. And the gospel is, even though I'm three three, my Savior is six eight, and He has drawn me near. The, the, the tragedy, ladies and gentlemen, today is that people who are three three don't know it and think they're six eight. You remember, you remember the story of the prodigal son, the other brother. He, he was the one who um, who lived close to the father. And he thought that, that he was 6'8", spiritually. When he was 3'3". Three, three, those who are near remain far. And those who, who finally realize how far they are get drawn near. Gang, have you ever... Um, Noticed how, how tenderly in the New Testament Jesus deals with people who have been wounded by moral failure. The, uh, the moral outsiders. Like in John 4, the Samaritan woman who had had five failed marriages. Or in John 8, the woman that was caught in adultery. Or the woman called the Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast... Seven demons. Have you ever noticed how, how tenderly he treats people like that? I read a story recently about um, a, a film that was made last year. It was a documentary film. And the title of the film was The Magdalene Sisters. And it was a documentary um, um, about women who were called the Maggies of Ireland. They got their name, of course, from Mary Magdalene. Well, um, the only thing that the New Testament tells us about Mary Magdalene is that she had seven demons cast out of her. But somewhere along the way, somebody uh, suggested that the, one, the, the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, that that was Mary Magdalene. Well, the point of that is, there was a convent of nuns who decided that they were going to take in women who had um, been impregnated outside of wedlock. And these women were going to be called Maggies. And so they brought the Maggies inside the convent and they assigned them to the convent laundry. Now, 
in the early 1900s, hundreds, or excuse me, in early 1990s, one of these convents was sold to a group of developers, and the group of developers went in as they began to deal with the land. They discovered 133 grave sites. 133 Maggies had been buried inside one of these convents. And uh, the media got involved and the, and the research began to broaden and they found that there was at least another 12 such Magdalene laundries in the nation of Ireland. And um, there, was a, there was a public uproar and an outrage at what was going on. And, and uh, as they went into the rest of these convents, convents they found scores of young women who had been brought into these convents and made to work without pay and in silence as an atonement for their sin. And uh, as the media spread, their, their, their survivors and relatives came forward to tell their stories. Uh, of course, the children that had been born outside of wedlock were then committed to other institutions. Joni Mitchell got involved, wrote a song, sang her song. And there was this outcry. And the last of these laundries was closed in 1996. Can you imagine? People committed to a convent laundry having to work in silence without pay because they were a temptress. Well, uh, as a result of this uh, movement, a bunch of people, campaigners, got behind the cause and they raised a bunch of money and, and they bought a bench with it. And they dedicated this bench to these Maggies and they put it in a park in St. Stephen's Green, which is a park in the center of Dublin. So that everybody could come and sit on this bench and pause to think of the Maggies of Ireland. I, I tell you that story, ladies and gentlemen, to simply illustrate my point. And my point is, have you ever noticed the difference? The difference in how Jesus treats moral failures and sometimes how the church does? What Jesus does with the woman who had five failed marriages, he turns her into his first evangelist and his first missionary. Or the woman caught in adultery, he protects her and defends her. Or Mary Magdalene, when he says, listen, um, everybody is going to talk about her for centuries. He restores Peter to leadership. Gang, um, it's... There's a vast difference sometimes in how we view our moral failures and how he does. Grace means, this gospel that we preach means that there is no failure that disqualifies us from the love of God. There's, there, is, there is never, you're never so far away. That you can't be brought near. There's not enough moral failure to render your experience hopeless. You're never so far that grace can't bridge the distance. I, I have a friend that I met when I first came to know the Lord. Gosh, I was in my early 20s. He was down in South Florida. And um, he was a single guy then, and he was, he was just, he was a neat guy. He was, 
really funny and, and witty. And we used to, we met a couple of times a week for prayer. And there was a bunch of verbal jousting that went on between the two of us. And, and he was always winning because he was always smarter than I was. And he was quicker witted and, and funnier. And he was just, but anyway, we would, we would carry on all this jousting between each other. And, and um, he was, you know, kind of a single guy, drove a Corvette. And, and um, when we went off to seminary, we moved into this little, I'll call it a bungalow, because uh, actually the house where we lived doubled as firewood for the rest of the seminary students in the winter. They'd come over and take off the side of the house and burn it. But um, we, we lived in this little house, and we loved this little house. But um, um, when we moved in, it was just a wreck, just a wreck. And this friend of ours from South Florida drove up to help us paint the inside of it. And so we painted for days on this place. And, you know, these plaster walls had been up since 1803, I think. I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable. Well, anyway, the only, the only entertainment that we showed this poor guy is that every night after we finished painting, we would go to the Dairy Queen. And he would, he gave me so much grief about the only thing that we ever entertained him with was the, the DQ. I mean, that's all you got in Jackson, Mississippi is the DQ. I mean, he was, he was hilarious. But one of the things that he used to make fun of me about quite often, I mean, all the time, was the way I dressed. As you know, I've never been accused of being a clothes hound, but he was, he was always making fun of, you know, I'd walk out of the bedroom ready to go someplace, and he would just run, you know, look at that. He was, he just, of course, he drove a Corvette, and he was single, and, and I ended up marrying him a couple of years later, but marrying him to his wife. And, um, uh, but um, he, again, he, he was just appalled at the, at the way that I dressed. And here's what he would always say about me. I would walk out of the bedroom ready to go, you know, to the DQ. And he would look at me and say, <laughs> you know, Jimmy, you are so far out, you're in. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm saying is that's what the gospel says. You are so far out. Every one of you. Every one of us have been distanced so far by our sin. And the moment that that's recognized, we're in. You're never too far out that you can't get in. There's not a moral failure. There's not a skeleton in your closet that is so ugly that means you've got to stay out. But I can tell you this, my friend. It is the presumption of thinking that you're in that leaves you out. It's the notion that I have no need that keeps you out. It's the idea that, that I'm already near that keeps you far. Anybody who recognizes my sin has made me so far off, those are the ones that get in. My friends, Christ still welcomes outsiders. He still welcomes strange visitors and foreigners and moral failures because the distance 
has been bridged by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Why don't you come on in? Our Father, I do pray that your people will be reminded by the, by the, the far-offness of three men who were drawn so irresistibly to behold this King. That's the same thing that has happened to every one of us. Our sin rendered us so distant. And yet, it is because of what you've accomplished in Christ that we can come near. Oh God, we were so far off. But because of Christ, we're now in. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that every man, woman in this room can relish, that they can taste the sweetness of knowing that they're in, that they have been brought near by grace, that the moral galaxy created by our sin has been bridged by the moral superiority of Jesus Christ and that we are safe because our 6-8 Savior has drawn us near. Lord Jesus, we love you. We are sorry we love you so little. But might this be the beginning of loving you all the more. We commit ourselves to that and we do so in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen.